With this evening's talk, we'll explore the pure and beautiful mind. The wholesome states and the beautiful states of heart and mind that are associated with the development and the fruits of concentration and insight practice. And all of this, all of these states include a growing depth, must include a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness. The chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness, this quality of mind that needs to accompany us through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka, the Abhidhamma Basket. So we'll begin by doing just a brief review of what this Abhidhamma Basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teachings. And the first basket, or the collection, uh, is the Book of Discipline, containing the rules of conduct for the monks and the nuns, and all of the guidelines regarding uh, governing and living in community, governing and living in Sangha. The second collection or basket brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third collection or basket is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has quite a distinctly different uh, character or quality than uh, does the, do the other two. Whereas it's not really a record of discourses and discussions uh, occurring in real-life settings, which uh, both of the other baskets are very much rooted in, but rather the Abhidhamma is a very clear, detailed, and refined disclosure of mind and mental processes. That, com- a com- that combines psychology, uh, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective. And it combines it into a unique and quite remarkable synthesis. And is experiential. Meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it can be helpful and inspiring at some point along the way of practice to actually hear in at least some detail about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in our practice. To understand a bit more of 
how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my own practice, I found that uh, this information really quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this uh, information, this understanding, can help to counter the fears and maybe other aversive reactions, the made-up and sometimes fanciful stories and analysis that misperceptions and misunderstandings and attachments, the clinging, of course, that can come up in practice in relationship to what may be unusual or unfamiliar experiences. So this is a help in that respect to counter some of these fears and clingings and the misperceptions and misunderstandings. These unusual or unfamiliar experiences that come up for everybody along the way and practice in different ways, some of which my Burmese uh, teachers, uh, teacher Saida Upandita, calls Dhamma Delights, the Dhamma Delights of our practice. So we're going to explore some of these this evening. And I'd like to, I actually wanted to begin the talk (laughs) with this quote, but I'll stick it in right here. This is a quote by William Butler Yeats. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. The Abhidhamma speaks about 36 wholesome, beautiful mental factors, wholesome, beautiful mental states associated with the development phase of concentration and the manifestation of jhana, and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and wisdom continue to unfold and blossom. And they manifest all along the way, uh, slowly and develop to varying degrees through the concentration and mindfulness-based insight practice. The first five mental factors, or five factors, are active, wholesome mental factors that are part of both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration and are very necessary in the development of insight practice. The first two of these factors, (coughs) being necessary and really active components throughout the practice of insight, The last three of these five factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during specific stages of the development and the manifestation of concentration and jhana. And they're also active during particular aspects of insight or vipassana practice. So these first five wholesome and beautiful factors of mind, 
which every one of you in the room are experiencing at least to some degree here in this retreat. Honestly, you are. (laughs) The first of these, the Pali word is vitaka. And it's translated as initial application. Meaning it's the application of the mind to the object. The object of attention. Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. And for some of us in our case here, maybe the in and out sensations of the breath at the anapanaspat, or the movement of the breath in the belly, or the movement of the breath throughout the whole body. It might be to sounds through the ear doors, sensations in the body as well. Its function is to strike, strike at, and thresh the object, as it's so very graphically uh, described in the Abhidhamma. And the Abhidhamma speaks about uh, this process experientially manifesting as leading or training the mind to the object, kind of like training a puppy. Vitaka has the special task and the fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, inhibiting the hindrances of sleepiness and lethargy. And in jhana, the uh, deep concentration of jhana, vitaka is the experience of the mind absorbing into the object, first the nimitta, the preliminary object, just before jhana, and then absorbing into the light of jhana itself. Vitaka is very closely associated, very closely connected with intention. Right intention, or wholesome intention, in our practice, as it's spoken about in the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is the first uh, wholesome aspect of mind factor of mind. The second, the Pali word is vichara. This is translated as sustained application. And vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure, or as it's described in the uh, Abhidhamma, continued stroking on the object. In the sense meaning of staying with it, and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continued and sustaining exercise of the mind, we could say, on the object. So in our case here, it may be the breath sensations at the nostril or the anapana area or somewhere else in the body or anything else that you might experience at one of the six sense doors. Vichara temporarily, totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt in deep states of concentration. And as vipassana practice, insight practice, goes into much deeper states of concentration in its own way. And it weakens doubt overall 
throughout one's ongoing concentration or insight practice. There are some wonderful um, metaphors or similes, as they're classically called, in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma that highlight the difference between vitaka and vichara. So I'd like to share just a few of these. Vitaka is like a bird spreading its wings to fly, that initial application. Vichara is like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings, sustained application. Vitaka is like a bee diving towards a flower, the initial application. And vichara is like a bee buzzing above the flower, sustained application. The third wholesome and beautiful factor of mind, the Pali word, is piti. And there are many different uh, translations and descriptions of piti. Zest, joy, and I'll give you some more in a little bit. Uh, the characteristics of piti can really be quite endearing. And I know some of you have become quite endeared at times, and maybe even more than endeared, but maybe attached. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be explained as, as delight, or a very positive, pleasurable interest in the object of attention. Its function is to refresh the mind and body. And it pervades the mind and in its initial stages, also the body, with what are sometimes called, what Saida Upandita called, thrills and chills, <laughs> which are sometimes described as, or the word that is sometimes used as rapture. Although this word really does not at all cover all of the nuances of piti. It often manifests as a mind and body quality of gladness, joy, a kind of mirth or merriment, elation, exaltation, exhilaration, and a satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries there are five grades, uh, we could call, of piti that are um, quite distinguished and can arise when vitaka and when vichara are in place and really perking along in our practice. And I'm sure that some of these uh, descriptions that I'll offer in a moment uh, uh, will be recognized by some of you as experiences that have occurred in your practice to some degree, to varying degrees. So the first is called minor joy, or minor zest, minor PT. And um, the way it's described, it is able to raise the hairs on the body. The second is momentary joy, or momentary zest, momentary PT. And it manifests as small flashes of lightning, like lightning in the mind. <coughs> the next is showering zest or joy or piti. And this breaks over the whole body again and again like waves 
on the seashore, kind of orgasmic-like. The next one is uplifting joy, uplifting zest, uplifting piti. And this uh, often uh, it can cause the body to feel like it's levitating, like being lifted up and sometimes even levitating, which I've heard um, from, uh, for some yogis, has actually occurred. <laughs> I haven't personally experienced being actually lifted off the ground. But there's a story <clears throat> that my friend and co-teacher, uh, who we teach Vipassana retreat together, um, Sadhu Vivekananda, tells about um, a monk in a particular monastery in Burma. Um, and he would sit in his room. He had his own little kuti, his own little room. And he would sit on his bed in his room practicing uh, all the time. And um, he would, uh, he had so much piti of this uh, particularly uplifting piti, Saidao said that he would rise up, out of, up, up, up off his bed, and then fall over. And it would happen again and again and again. So uh, the story goes that um, at one point it happened continually, and so he, he probably bragged a little bit about it, which he wasn't <laughs> supposed to do, but did because in fact he called uh, a number of the other monks told them about it and called them over to stand at the window of his room and watch which they did and it happened they watched the show and he was able to concentrate enough and put on a show the next one is called pervading joy or pervading zest pervading PT and this pervades or floods, we could say, the whole mind and body with a very refreshing, bright elation. And the Abhidhamma description is like a flood that fills a cavern. As a factor of mind, a wholesome factor of mind, a sustained piti particularly PT that's experienced more as a mind state than in the body, which develops as uh, practice develops more and more, it has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused and absorbed attention on the object, as happens with the manifestation of jhana, PT temporarily inhibits all ill will. The fourth wholesome and beautiful state of mind is in Pali, sukha. Happiness is the usual translation. And this mental factor, and it's a mental factor, is a pleasant, happy mental feeling that's born out of mind contact with the object. A very sweet, blissful mental feeling born out of, and this is a very important part, born out of detachment from all sensual pleasure. And so it's explained as unworldly or spiritual happiness. Because, of course, our worldly uh, happiness is usually quite connected to 
some sort of physical experience or it manifests physically to some degree. This is mental. And it counters and weakens the hindrances of restless and worry. Restlessness and worry. It can be very gratifying and engenders, can engender a very deep sense of gratification. Consequently, it's quite easy to, uh, to uh, get quite attached to this particular mental factor. So it's extremely important that mindfulness remains strong and clear. I'd like to read you um, a description from uh, uh, the Abhidhamma for PT and Sukha. They're not PT and Sukha are um, they're closely connected, but they're not the same. So I want to read you these uh, descriptions. PT is like a weary traveler in the desert in summer who hears of or sees water in a shady wood. Sukha, ease, happiness, is like his enjoying the water in entering the forest, forest shade. For a man who, traveling along the path through a great desert and overcome by heat, is thirsty and desirous of drink. If he saw a man on the way, he would ask, where is water? The other would say, beyond the wood is a dense forest with a natural lake. Go there and you will get some. He, hearing these words, would be glad and delighted, and as he went, would see lotus leaves, etc., fallen on the ground and become more glad and delighted. Going onwards, he would see men in wet clothes and hair, hearing the sounds of wildflower, wildfowl and peafowl, See the dense forest of green like a net of jewels growing by the edge of a natural lake. He would see the water lily, the lotus, the white lily, etc. growing in the lake. He would see the clear, transparent water. He would be all the more then glad and delighted. And then he would descend into the natural lake, bathe and drink at pleasure, and his oppression being allayed. He would eat the fibers and the stalks of the lilies, adorn himself with the blue lotus, carry on his shoulders the roots of the mandakala, ascend from the lake, put on his clothes, dry the bathing cloth in the sun, and in the cool shade, where the breeze blew ever so gently, lay himself down and say, Oh, bless, oh, bless. This is the Dharma, I want you to know. <laughs> Thus, this illustration is still from the Abhidhamma. Thus, this, uh, should this illustration be applied, the time of gladness and delight from which he heard of the natural lake and the dense forest till he saw the water is like rapture, having the manner of gladness and delight at the object in view. The time when his bath... Uh, after his bath and dried, he laid himself down in the cool shade, saying, O oh bliss, O oh bliss, is the sense of ease, happiness, sukha, grown strong, established in that mode of enjoying the taste of the object.
P.T. and Soka. The fifth of these wholesome and beautiful mental factors is one-pointedness. The Pali word is ikagata. And this Pali uh, term literally means one, a one-pointed state. This mental factor is the primary component, <clears throat> is the essence of concentration. Be it a sustained concentration and a potentially absorbed concentration, or a momentary focus of attention as in vipassana, as in insight practice. With the fourth jhana, in deep concentration, one-pointedness temporarily completely inhibits sensual desire for anything and weakens it overall. This weakening aspect of one-pointed concentration is a necessary condition for any really deeply transformative meditative attainment. The function of ikagata is that one is able to very closely contemplate the object, though it cannot perform this function all by itself. It requires the joint or the cooperative action of all of the other four factors that we've just explored a bit, each performing its own function in cooperation with the others. So vitaka, applying the attention, and all of the associated states that um, applying the attention on the object. Vichara, sustaining the attention on the object, along with all of the other associated mental states. And piti, bringing delight in the object. Sukha, experiencing a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. So this is all integrated part and parcel with this one-pointed, as the one-pointedness of ikagata develops. The sixth uh, wholesome and beautiful state of mind is in Pali, it's adimoka, or decision as it's sometimes translated, or resolve, as it's translated. And it literally means the releasing of the mind into the object. And so it's rendered as decision or resolution. And it has the characteristic of conviction and the function of not kind of groping around. It manifests rather as decisiveness. And its nearest or most immediate cause is that it needs something to be convinced about. (laughs) So for instance, um, and in our case here, it might mean uh, making a resolve to give one's complete attention to the breath at the anapana spot, or maybe the breath in the abdominal area, or the breath as it moves in and through the body. It's been compared, uh, this 
decision or resolve, adimoka, has been compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object, whatever the object might be, the object of attention. The next wholesome and beautiful quality is energy. And the Pali word is virya. It's the state or the action of one who is vigorous, full of energy and vigorous. Its characteristic is supporting. It really supports our practice. Its char- another characteristic is exertion. And it's sometimes talked about as marshalling or mobilizing. It helps the marshalling and the mobilizing for the energy of our practice. And its function is to support the states that it's associated with, all the various states that it might be associated with. And it manifests as non-collapsing. Now, sometimes we feel, have this experience of the body and the mind kind of collapsing. Well, this quality of energy, of virya, manifests as non-collapsing. The closest cause for this energy to manifest is some sense of urgency, some sense of spiritual urgency. Or possibly also engaging in um, an experience for arousing energy, which could be as simple as taking a kind of brisk walk, or doing maybe 15 minutes of uh, mindful yoga or tai chi or some mindful exercise. Or anything really that stirs and inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action, and in this case meaning towards energetic practice. The next quality, a beautiful and wholesome quality, is the word in Pali is chanda, which is wholesome desire. We hear a lot about the dangers of desire in our Dharma practice, but there's wholesome desire, which is what got you here, actually. And it means the desire to act, the desire to perform an action or to achieve a result from a wholesome root. Coming to the retreat. Coming to sit each time you come to sit. Walking every time you do walking meditation. And of course this kind of desire needs to be distinguished from the unwholesome desire that stems from greed and stems from lust. Chanda, wholesome desire. It is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. And of course it can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal in relationship to our practice, our aspirations, our worthy aspirations. And it's spoken of metaphorically in the Abhidhamma, I love this uh, metaphor, uh, as the stretching forth 
of the mind's hand toward the object. So as I mentioned a little while ago, there are 36 of these. We're not going to go through all 36. We'll be here for days, actually, if we went to the detail that I've just done. So we're going to go through the next uh, group of them more quickly. And some of them we've talked about quite a bit already between Annie and I. The next one is faith. And I did a morning reflection a little while ago on faith. The next one we've talked about quite a bit, mindfulness. Uh, the next two, uh, wholesome and a uh, beautiful mind states, are in Palihiri and Otapa. And the translation of Hiri is moral shame. The translation of Otapa is moral dread, or that's the literal translation, fear of wrongdoing. And these these two mental factors, Hiri and Otapa, are actually considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection of the family, the community, the world, and for all of our relationships. The next uh, few, two, are, uh, come from a certain side, non-greed and non-hatred. We've talked about these in various ways. The next is neutrality of heart and mind, which is associated with equanimity, the neutrality of heart and mind. The next is tranquility of mind and heart. Tranquility is beyond just calm. It's an extensive calmness. Tranquility of consciousness is the next one. And going on, a lightness of mind, a lightness of heart, meaning a brightness, lightness, the opposite of a heaviness, a sinking, the opposite of the sinking of the heart, the sinking of the mind, the sinking of consciousness. So then next is the lightness of consciousness. And then uh, some, I find these, these next two quite interesting, malleability. The malleability of the mind and the heart. The non-rigidity. We really are very... The heart and the mind are very malleable. Not rigid. Not, not stiff and tight. The malleability of consciousness. All this, uh, some subtle stuff. The next one is the wieldiness, it's called. The wieldiness of the mind and heart. So what does that mean? The ability of the mind and the heart to go where it needs to go. And the wieldiness of consciousness. The next one, the proficiency of mind and heart. Which means the clarity and the quickness of the mind and the heart. Developing, all developing. All of this stuff is perking in all of you. It's all in process of developing. The proficiency, the clarity and quickness of consciousness. The next one, honesty. Uprightness of mind and heart. Honesty or uprightness of consciousness. The next one, metta. The unconditional loving kindness. 
that is constantly being nurtured and developed. The next one, compassion, karuna in Pali. And the next, appreciative joy or I, uh, mudita, appreciative or sometimes I call it empathetic joy in relationship to others' joys and successes and happiness. And the next one in Pali, it's upekka, which is equanimity, the balance, the evenness of heart and mind. And the next one, non-delusion. That's uh, when we're completely non-deluded, we're finished. We don't need to practice anymore. (laughs) And then there are three more beautiful uh, mental and wholesome factors that the Buddha called the abstinences. And there are three distinct uh, mental factors um, that the Buddha spoke that come about through uh, three different ways. And the first um, uh, way he called natural abstinence, meaning the abstinence from physical and mental deeds that cause harm. They're classically called evil deeds. Uh, but physical and mental deeds that cause harm to others, to ourselves. When the opportunity arises uh, to engage them in our life due to uh, various conditions that are arising in our life. Conditions such as maybe one's social position, maybe one's age, one's level of education, one's particular inclinations and interests. And we naturally, in this case, we naturally abstain because of a mind and a heart that has some degree of wisdom and compassion available. The next abstinence that the Buddha speaks about is the abstinence of undertaking the precepts. So our commitment to live our life through taking the precepts the commitment to live our life observing the precepts. Abstaining, for instance, from killing, abstaining from harmful speech, abstaining from taking what's not, not taking what's given, abstaining from stealing, that's the easiest way to say it, Uh, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from taking intoxicants of various sorts that cloud the mind. So abstinence as taking and living by the precepts. And the third one is he, the Buddha called abstinence by eradication. And this, uh, this abstinence comes through the fruits of engaging in what, are, what is sometimes called the supramundane path. The supramundane of path, the path of purification of the heart and the mind. this Buddha-Dhamma path of awakening, this Buddha-Dhamma path of liberation. Now this, what is eradicated, which is really um, interesting and profound, what is eradicated by this third abstinence, through the fruits of our practice, is the eradication of the disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. And that's profound if you give it a moment of thought. No disposition towards 
engaging in any deeds that cause harm. The first two abstinences are what are called mundane, or very, they're common. Ordinary in the sense of, uh, in the worldly sense. But this last one, the abstinence by eradication, is super mundane, meaning it's not common in the worldly sense. But it's uh, of a purified, spiritually purified nature. And the next wholesome and beautiful state of mind that is developed and being developed as we practice. Right speech. So we, it's all through the, again, through the precepts, uh, a deliberate abstinence from wrong speech, meaning a deliberate abstinence through false speech, slanderous speech, harsh, harsh speech, Frivolous talk it's, is, is considered uh, one aspect of this. The next is right action, as it's called, classically. So abstaining from harmful or wrong, I like the word harmful, bodily actions, such as the killing and stealing and sexual misconduct, which is, again, part of the um, precepts living by the precepts. And the next one is right livelihood. So again, this unfolding in our mind and heart of abstaining from wrong livelihood. And it's spoken of uh, in the classical teachings, such as dealing in poisons or dealing in weapons, dealing in intoxicants, dealing in animals for slaughter, Dealing in people being used for unwholesome or harm in, used in unwholesome or harmful ways, and classically in those days, still some places in this world, uh, it, it, it's dealing with slaves, dealing with um, harm to children, prostitution. There's all many big long list. So abstaining from any kind of engagement in that kind of work. And these three particular, these three that I just mentioned, um, right speech, right action, right livelihood, these three abstinences function as a kind of shrinking back from harmful deeds, from engaging in harmful deeds. And so they manifest as abstinence from engaging in these kinds of deeds. The closest and most pertinent causes for this are the very special and beautiful qualities of faith and shame from engaging in harmful deeds, the hiri otapa qualities of the heart and mind. And also from having few wants and wishes, fewer wants and wishes as we practice that, is quite a natural unfolding for us. 
So we could say that all three of these particular beautiful mental factors, we could say they could be regarded as the mind, the heart's wholesome aversion to wrongdoing, to give it an overview. The very last, we're already to number 36. (laughs) The very last is um, the wisdom faculty, the wholesome and beautiful mental factor of understanding, the wholesome and beautiful mental factor of insight, wisdom. Which is this very path we are engaged in. That's very path we are each walking on, in our own way, at our own pace. It's a path of the heart and the mind. And as Carlos Castaneda said, a person of knowledge chooses a path with a heart and then follows it and then looks and rejoices and laughs and then sees and knows. The importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to our own practice, our own practice experience, as concentration and as mindfulness begin and then continue to blossom, is that with some knowledge of what's occurring and why it's occurring, we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, to recognize, and to know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment, without identification, and without fear or other aversive reactions or misunderstandings and misperceptions, but rather with what is classically called dispassion, which is in fact without attachment and without identification, with dispassion, which is what allows the continuing development of our practice to keep unfolding and blossoming. In their fullness, in their utmost maturity, these are the wholesome and the beautiful qualities, the capacities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. And I'd like to um, close this talk, the, uh, this evening's talk, with a couple of quotes. The first is maybe unlikely, but maybe familiar to some of you. This is from. Um, Robert Piersig, who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And uh, maybe some of you, many years ago, as did I, read that book. And this is from that book. 
So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate one's self from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work, which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. That's why we read that book. And closing the uh, talk with um, some words from Atisha, who was an 11th century uh, Tibetan Buddhist master. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And let's sit for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.